Cell and gene therapies are one of the most exciting developments in life sciences and healthcare. Conditions that were once deemed incurable, something to be managed over a lifetime, now have a realistic prospect of being overcome. Instead of just treating symptoms, these new treatments could allow us to cure disease. But what are the implications of this? How far can we take these cures? And what would we be willing to pay for them? In this, the first of two episodes on the future of cell and gene, we'll be taking a look at the scientific and social impact of this important field. Can we imagine a world where diseases are cured rather than treated? And what will it take to get there? To find out, join me, Stuart Lowe, as we plug in to Invent Life Sciences, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, are cell and gene therapies ready to go mainstream? Cell and gene therapies have been with us for longer than you may think. The first transfusion of human bone marrow, essentially a stem cell therapy, was given to a patient in 1939. The first person to be treated with gene therapy was a four-year-old girl in 1990. And earlier this year, a major milestone was reached. Emily Whitehead, a young girl who was treated with a CAR-T cell therapy for acute lymphoblastic leukaemia, celebrated 10 years cancer-free, long enough for that therapy to be considered a cure. What is it about these therapies that allows us to consider curing cancer and eliminating life-defining diseases like diabetes altogether? Well, it's an aspiration that has driven scientists to develop more advanced medicines and more precise ways of engineering cells, like CRISPR. In some of the most advanced therapies, we actually harvest a patient's own cells, transform them to modify their function, then re-transplant them as a cellular medicine. It allows doctors to tap into the incredible power of the human immune system in the fight against disease. But how are these therapies different from what has come before? Not just in the science, but in the manufacturing and economics too. And how do we ensure that these transformational new medicines make it to the patients who need them the most. And how long is this all going to take? I wanted to find out what is possible now and what is standing in our way to make this future a reality. And what better way to start than by speaking to Dan Strange, a cell and gene therapy consultant who's been with us at TTP for almost 10 years. A technologist and engineer with a background in tissue biomechanics and regenerative medicine. Dan has specialised in leading large medical device development projects. He's a massive champion of cell therapies, and you can often find him advocating their amazing application around the office. Oh yeah, and he also has some experience in rocket science and near-space parachute deployment. He's really a jack of all scientific trades. I asked him to explain to me what makes the cell and gene breakthroughs of the past few years different from other developments in medicine. Why are these new therapies so innovative and so exciting. We hear a lot about medicine and how it's got the potential to transform lives. You know, doctors are healers. 
are they curing disease? I mean, isn't isn't curing disease what medicine does? Isn't that the whole point? I think if you know if you think about some of the fundamental breakthroughs in in medicine over the last um, hundred years, yes, it, f- curing has has fundamentally been a part of that. Um, penicillin antibiotics, um, curing bacterial infections. Um, very very familiar now with vaccines and what that can potentially do, um, and, and the advent of that. But the reality over the last uh, say fifty years, even, is is been is been different, um, where the vast majority of treatments that have been uh, developed are often either um, treating symptoms or they're preventing exacerbations. So if you suffer from asthma, everyone's familiar with with someone wandering around with an inhaler, but fundamentally they're not actually curing um, the disease themselves. That person will have asthma for the rest of their lives. Um, and if it's not asthma, but but COPD, which is a, a similar um, lung disease, that tends to have a fairly steady progression, which you might be able to present uh, prevent those exacerbations, but they typically get worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, so if you look at the, the top 10 causes of death, um, and you think about um, what is causing death, both in developed and developing societies, particularly developed societies uh, at the moment, it's things like heart disease and stroke. Fundamentally, you're not curing the, the problems that are leading to that um, heart disease in the first place. So there's, there's this huge burden of healthcare, which is all about treatment of symptoms, prevention of exacerbations, but not cure. So, so the, the fundamental difference is that with the prevention of disease or with the kind of management of disease, it's an ongoing thing and it's something that you have to do kind of many times, whereas the, the cure might be a one shot or maybe like a, a course of three or something like that. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it's, I mean, it, it's the difference between needing to take medicine uh, for the rest of your life versus having a, a treatment or procedure which which means that you're healthy from now onwards um, and uh, from a business perspective and from a pharma perspective you can you can imagine why there's been a lot of effort into coming up with treatments that are ones that you take for the rest of your life because it's a great business model what would a, a medicine that can cure a disease look like as compared to one that just treats symptoms so, so I think there are a few different Types and it's driven by um, a few technological advances over the last uh, ten to twenty years um, around genetic manipulation, around the ability uh, of uh, handling and manipulating cells and, and bioprocessing. Um, so the one that's perhaps easiest to explain um, uh, is uh, a gene therapy, um, and this. Um, imagine that you've got a, a, a genetic defect or a disorder, um, which is then causing a, a life-threatening disease. Um, you can now go in uh, through a variety of different techniques and replace that that missing or defective gene um, with a healthy version and cure a patient. Um, Zolgesma is a very recent example of this that was approved in 2019 for the treatment of spinal muscular atrophy. Um, which is a rare genetic condition where babies are born with a genetic mutation uh, that causes uh, motor neurons to malfunction and die. Um, And uh, that can now be treated in a one-time cure. That one-time cure uh, costs the NHS around 1.8 million uh, euros, but, but there you go. If you think about it in terms of kind of years of life gained, 
that's quite good value. It's the difference between them living um, for a short number of years and often having, um, actually, whilst they're alive, there's often a, a progression of complications, which um, becomes more and more challenging for, for everyone involved to have to, to deal with um, versus uh, living a, a healthy, normal life until just like absolutely um, anyone else. Thinking about this episode, do we want to cure all disease? Where, where does this end up in the in the limit where you're saying somebody's uh, getting to a, an old age and would we would we then try and cure diseases of aging? Could I take a pill that would let me live to 200? One of the other things in our toolbox um, technologies that's being developed that goes alongside this is, is regenerative medicine. Um, and uh, that's, that's a really good example of what you're saying there because the examples of where this is being thought about, um, things like heart disease, um, your... Uh, as um, your arteries and things like that gradually degrade over time, um, as uh, your 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 uh, cartilage all that degrades over time, um, can you start? Can you regrow that? Can you repair that and add on um, a another very many years um, along that lines? Um, there are a lot of challenges in doing that, but there already have been a few different successes. There's a treatment approved um, for replacement of, of corneal epithelium. There are a range of different treatments for, for uh, skin burns and, and things like that um, that, are, that are coming through. Yeah, the idea is, you know, someone might be 65, suffering from hypertension, um, rather than keeping them on, on statins for a very long time, which is a very low-cost, effective way of preventing further exacerbations, but still for some patients isn't enough, do you actually prescribe regenerative medicine treatment, repair the diseased tissues, um, and give them a, a wide range of, of uh, well, a new lease of life? Regenerative medicine, not just protecting the body from disease, but actually repairing or replacing cells, curing the disease. A large part of this field of medicine is the cell and gene therapies we'll be talking about over the next two episodes. But where will they be deployed as cures? Well, a key has always been cancer. It's a disease that many of us are all too familiar with. A disease which, because we live longer lives, has become increasingly common. But is cancer the be-all and end-all for cell and gene? Why is it this application that's garnered so much focus? I got in touch with someone who knows all about this field, Jacob Peterson. Jacob is the head of Cell Therapy Research and Development at Nova Nordisk and an adjunct professor in biomedicine at Copenhagen University Medical Faculty. With over 20 years in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries, Jacob has worked in R&D from everything from diabetes to cardiovascular disease. And through his current head of cell therapy R&D role, he's involved in the creation of new treatments in this space from start to finish. I called Jacob up from his base in Denmark and asked him the simple question, why cancer? Are there any other applications for these therapies? Why has cancer been the focus of cell therapies to, to date? Why do they get so much attention? The main reason why cell therapy gets so much attention is a little bit like you stated, they can cure or treat 
serious chronic diseases where there are little or no treatment. And, and many of these diseases are big lifestyle diseases like chronic heart failure, like many of the metabolic diseases, oncology, and, and, and then we get into the more rare diseases with the gene therapy, at least for now. So there's a huge potential to address diseases that we have not been able to address before. And that's, I guess, is why people get excited. And that would impact uh, all, if you're thinking about the number of disease sufferers in, in the world, that's kind of in the billions, right? Yeah, yeah. because if you look a little bit at uh, longevity or lifespan, how, how have that increased You know, over the, the last 50 or so years, from the 60s to now, it, in, in, in the US, it has gone from... 70 to 79 percent average age but that's in the last five or ten years it's kind of flattened out a little bit and and uh, uh, there are many speculations why that is i personally believe that is many of the serious chronic diseases uh, that are more associated to lifestyle and not living an active life you know like obesity diabetes cardiovascular disease that are kind of flattening the curve uh, a little bit and uh, that's why I think that uh, we have a unique opportunity to really address some of these diseases so people not only can live longer, because in, to my mind, that's not a vision in itself, but it is to live a healthier uh, and more uh, productive life when you get uh, older. Can, can we talk a little bit about, I know you've had personal experience with uh, type 1 diabetes in, in your family and how, how that's affected the lifestyle of, of, of your daughter. Can you, can you talk us through a little bit about kind of what, what effect that has and how do you go about managing it today? Yeah, a- absolutely. So, so basically, uh, I have a nine-year-old daughter that uh, four years, uh, five years ago got uh, type 1 diabetes. And I have been working with type 1 diabetes at, at Novo Nordisk for uh, several decades and, you know, I, I knew all the patients, uh, societies. I've even been a, a, a chairman of the board for the Janice ADF chap, that was the biggest uh, interest organization in the world for type 1 diabetes. And uh, I sort of kind of knew it all. You know, I knew all the KOLs, I knew all the doctors, and I had deep insight into the disease myself. And then that Monday morning when I discovered uh, after a summer where my daughter has been drinking and showing some unusual signs that all pointed to the fact that she was becoming a type 1 diabetes. When I did the diagnose on her, I, I just said, okay, how hard can it be? You inject insulin a few times a day and you may block glucose. But it was a life-changing experience. And type 1 diabetes, even though left untreated, is a deadly disease, you will die. And if you uh, take too much, and it's not a lot, the dosing window is very narrow, you can also die. There are really good treatments, but it is a chronic disease that is 24-7. You cannot say, today I don't want to be a diabetic, because then you may not be there in the morning. Yeah. Uh, what does your dream look like in terms of how would we improve this, this situation? I think that we and others will continue to develop better insulins and better treatment modalities. But the ultimate treatment is, of course, a curative treatment where we take pluripotent stem cells and then turn them into insulin-producing beta cells that we then can give back to the patients so they don't need to take insulin or measure their blood glucose anymore. That's kind of the ultimate 
goal to, to, to get there. So it's a curative treatment. So this is basically the difference between having insulin therapy over the course of a lifetime and having stem, th- uh, stem cell transplant. Uh, is, it, is, it, is it a transplant? Could you, do you term it that? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so it's a little bit like a heart transplant, right? If your heart is broken, then you can get a new heart. And, and for, for type 1 diabetics, it has been shown for decades that if you use cadaver donors and transplant them into diabetics, that you can basically, uh, in some cases, cure them from their disease. The problem with cadaver donors and, and, and insulin-producing beta cells are they are extremely fragile. So the quality is very poor, and the donor materials available is very, very low. So we can treat zero point something of the diabetics with, uh, with, with that approach. So what we and others have tried to do is to say that we need an indefinite high-quality source of cells that are making insulin, which is what you are missing in type 1 diabetes. And we can do that uh, from stem cells. So we can add different growth factors and make them produce insulin and become insulin-producing beta cells. You then take these cells and then you transplant them back into the human body. And you can take three approaches for doing that. One that has been shown to work that is that you transplant the cells into the liver and then you give immunosuppression. But immunosuppression, because diabetes is such a well-treated disease, even though it's a huge burden, as we just discussed, uh, also comes with a set of complications. And, and I, for example, my daughter is so well-regulated, I would never give her that, even though I would give my right arm, literally speaking, for her to get a cure for diabetes, but not if the compromise were getting on immunosuppression. For some patients, however, they are so poorly treated that that, that equation is worth, worth going after, where the, where the benefits are bigger than the risk of immunosuppression. What we and others are then trying to do in order to get it out and get broad access to most of the patients is that you can put the cells into what we call a tea bag. It's a small device that looks like a tea bag, and you can put the cells in there so the immune system cannot recognize the cells and kill them. And that means that if we are successful with this, that you don't need any immunosuppression. The, the last way that we and others are also looking at is that you can actually, by genetic engineering, make the stem cells invisible for the immune system. So you basically remove a lot of the molecules on the surface of the cells that's responsible for your immune system killing off the cells. And such a cell line can be used in, for example, if you want to make cardiomyocytes to treat chronic heart failure or any disease, because basically if you engineer the cells so the immune system cannot see it, it can be used as a universal cells once you then differentiate it into either beta cells, dopaminergic neurons to treat Parkinson's, or cardiomyocytes to treat chronic heart failure. And that then means that you then have a cell type where you don't need encapsulation device, which is complicated, and you don't need immunosuppression. So that's the long-term goal to go in that direction. I really felt moved by Jacob's personal investment here. It's proof of the extraordinary potential that cell and gene therapies have. This sort of therapy could bring life-changing solutions to disease sufferers of all kinds. But that's not to say that their application is not without challenge. To develop these groundbreaking therapies requires smart minds and sound science, yes. 
but also investment, infrastructure, skills development and more. So how are governments setting these things up today? How can they better support the life sciences sector? I needed an industry perspective to explain more about how you might go about setting up an effective cell and gene ecosystem here in the UK. So I got in touch with Kath Mackay. Kath is the Director of Life Sciences for Bruntwood SciTech, a company that provides this very needed infrastructure. Previously on the executive management team at Innovate UK, Kath has a track record which proves her passion for growing the UK's life sciences sector. In her new role, she's responsible for developing Bruntwood SciTech's vision, strategy and services for life sciences in their campuses, which include Audley Park, Birmingham Health Innovation Campus, City Labs Manchester and Melbourne Science Park. I asked her how her work helps companies take their cell and gene therapies from concept to launch. And you must have seen the the cell and gene therapy industry take off in the last kind of 10 to 15 years. Yeah, no, it's, been, it's been absolutely fascinating. And I think a real UK success story, I, I think. And there are many reasons why the UK is successful. A huge wealth of scientific knowledge in this area, fantastic clinical infrastructure, but also I think the government had its eye really on making some targeted and probably quite risky investments. Mm-hmm. And those happened at, at the right time to really form that industry, take it out of academia and lock it down into the UK. So it's really promising that the BIA is championing the UK life sciences sector. And I know it's a big governmental priority as well. But I mean, on the ground, what does it actually take to to build a life sciences ecosystem in the UK from your point of view? It, it takes many factors and it's not just a case of um, of, of buildings and facilities, although it, obviously they, they're needed by businesses. And if you don't have the right buildings and facilities, they, they can be extremely limiting um, in the, 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 the scale up of a, of a bioscience business. But actually there's, there's much more to it than, than that. You need um, you, you need um, ideas and an IP pool. Um, I mean, many clusters historically are, are, are co-located with, with universities um, because of that. Um, you need support for entrepreneurs. Um, so you know, that can be delivered. You know, we, we, if I think of our model, we choose to do that in a, a variety of different rate, ways. Um, we run structured um, accelerator um, and business support programs, um, mentoring and coaching by other entrepreneurs and people who've done that previously is incredibly powerful. And the formation of peer networks um, forms a supportive part of that ecosystem um, to to really uh, you know, support people who are who are doing something for the very first time. Um, that could be establishing a business, or it could be diversifying a business and taking on a new challenge. But I think that that coaching and mentoring. Um, is absolutely fundamental. I think in terms of that ecosystem, you need people to to want to work um, in in those businesses, and you want people to, to to want to be part of a community as well. So you need to think about how um, those businesses are going to attract in new talents, um, and and how the ecosystem will, will lend itself to that. So there is something around um, finding out what the the skills and talent uh, needs are. Um, of a particular cluster um, and, and working with universities, recruiters, businesses 
on addressing some of those challenges and you know some of those can be short term and you know making making sites and clusters attractive to to get people to join them but some of it actually is incredibly long term so it's working with um education providers um and and and, and other bodies to to um upskill people and um and and encourage them to you know, to choose um, careers in life sciences and you know that's obviously incredibly long term but it's all part of the the, the talent funnel um, I think there's something around bringing people together in, in those ecosystems to share knowledge and ideas which is incredibly powerful and but I think there's also you know, other ways to, to to bring people together as part of a, a, a healthy ecosystem and it, it's it's events and initiatives that I suppose deliberately encourage that collaboration and that can be relatively structured or or, or unstructured and I think is uh, yeah, the, the 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 sign I think of a, a maturing and, and healthy ecosystem is when you, you start to see a lot of that happening and you don't have to put it on as, as someone who runs a site I mean you know, we we at Aldley Park for instance one of our, our sites in the north of of, of, of England um, we've got um, a, a peer network now across the CEO base um, but actually, you know, we've established, but stepped away from that actually because those pe- those CEOs are are forming a bit of a club and a network and and discussing some of their, their shared challenges together. But setting up a company isn't that easy. It comes with various challenges, not least those faced when we actually look at the science behind the therapies. Cell and gene therapies are amongst the most complex medicines ever conceived. And complexity can lead to cost. This becomes especially problematic when we look at traditional models of pricing in pharma, where we look to provide companies with a sustainable stream of income. How will they be able to adapt to new one-off treatments that cure with a single price tag? I wanted to know what sort of economic challenges scientists are facing when developing cell and gene therapies, and what changes need to be made to make them viable for healthcare systems to adopt. So I went back to Dan Strange to find out. So can you can you briefly describe the the business model of a pharmaceutical company? What what is their sort of kind of commercial raison d'être? I, I, I mean, it's uh, pharmaceutical companies are. Um, researching and developing different molecules, different drugs, which, like any company, they aim to sell those um, for a uh, profit and a continued sustained revenue stream. Uh, well, for a long time, that one of the best-selling drugs in the world was, was Humira, um, and that was treating a wide range of autoimmune uh, diseases. Part of the reason why it was so successful is, again, it was a something that you had to take um, on a uh, weekly or monthly basis um, for the rest of your life. So it's it's a very sustained earner. And if you think about how pharmaceutical companies operate, they're typically patenting a particular API, a particular uh, chemical entity, um, and then they're trying to extract value from that that chemical entity, which they do a lot of expensive research and development to bring to the market for the rest of that patent life. Um, so if you can... If, if in the way that's done, um, uh, they're able to, to sell that in a, with a recurring revenue stream um, for the rest of that patent uh, life, it's, it's, a very, uh, it's a very lucrative uh, business to be in. It's, it's a different question if you're only um, 
selling that treatment once per patient. You're, you've just got a much smaller potential market. Well, you, you get a chance to say, actually, this isn't working. Let's stop. We've spent a certain amount of money. Whereas with, with the cures, it seems like you're going to have to spend a lot of money up front. Is that, is that the only way of doing it? That's exactly the problem. And it's where outcome-based reimbursement is, which is a trend that's been happening over the last five, ten years of trying to think about are there ways to, can you link the actual performance of a very expensive drug to its pricing and its reimbursement and and potentially align incentives very well between both pharma companies and, and healthcare systems and ensure that value for money is actually happening. So sometimes it gets called value-based healthcare for that reason. Sometimes it's outcome-based reimbursement. But fundamentally, rather than the pharma company simply being reimbursed for every unit of a specific drug that they sell, they get a certain amount of money. Actually, now um, there are different forms of this, but in the most extreme form, they're actually being um, reimbursed for how well that drug is is managing that patient's condition. Yeah, so, so, so it gives some of the control back to the healthcare system. It's almost like a car loan where you've you've got the expensive car or the expensive treatment, but you don't pay for it all up front. You just pay for it over time. And then even better is actually if the car or the medicine stops working, then you, you can stop paying. And, and and I think Rolls Rolls Royce, in terms of aircraft, and a similar example has done things like actually power by the hour. So what they're selling is the fact that the engines are, are providing power in the air over time. It's a similar transition that's potentially happening for these most expensive drugs in healthcare as a means to actually allow much, much more expensive one-time cures that could potentially go in where, to be a profitable business, that the pharma company um, still needs to make a return on an investment on the masses of R&D that they're putting into these drugs. And it's partly why when they're so expensive that there need to be ways where uh, a healthcare system can can choose that actually that's a good investment to make. And actually from the alignment point you were making earlier, it's very much in the pharma company's best interests for that drug to work and to continue to work and continue to give good outcomes month after month, year after year. Exactly. It's potentially, it starts to be where there's some really healthy competition and, and, and ensuring alignment of incentives if it's driving a whole range of trends. So if you're now developing a, a cancer therapy, therapy, which is potentially curative, you want to make sure that you've got robust data to actually ensure that you're giving it into patients for which it's going to work. And that's starting to lead to things like uh, precision medicine and trends like that, where you might have a companion diagnostic that goes alongside the treatment so that you've got a better idea of is this treatment likely to work in a specific patient at least for now these pricing issues seem like they could be hard to justify but what does it mean financially to cure somebody is it worth it for a one-shot cell or gene therapy it's a question which touches on ethics and morality And it's one which people across the industry have been struggling with since the inception of the field. Jacob had some useful insights on this question. How do we justify some of the price tags that we hear about on the cell therapies? I think if you look at the price tag 
for the first rocket that went to the moon on space and compare it to the price, you know, the first Sputnik or whatever, or, or the price tag for the current satellites, I think you will see the price has come down significantly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it's the same thing with technology. And I think and hope, but I'm pretty sure that that will also be the case for gene and cell therapies, that right now we are all building infrastructure. But most importantly, and please remember, if we look at cell and gene therapy, I think FDA has only approved 22 products in, in, in the U.S. They expect from 25 that they will approve 10 to 20 products every year. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that will hopefully drive down the prices significantly because there will be more contract manufacturers that will look at this and say, we want a bite of this cake because it's very expensive, it's very difficult, and else it becomes more and more a commodity, more and more people will enter in and prices will go down. Yeah, so the, the first one is very difficult, very expensive, but the, by the time you're doing the fifth one or the tenth one, then it's almost becoming more routine. Yeah. And hopefully the patients are going to benefit from that. How are those decisions made generally? So who, who's determining the, the benefit and who, who are the stakeholders in the, in the pricing? I, I mean, that depends on which region you are in the world. In, in, the, in the US, it's to a large degree the insurance companies, right, that are saying, is this, uh, you know, what kind of insurance do you have? And then is there a good case for them to uh, suggest that you can get this treatment? And, and for some of the more expensive treatments, you know, the CAR-T also expensive, but maybe not, not that much more expensive to some of the other oncology treatments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I think it's a, a risk-benefit and human pain and suffering. We, we, we work in something called quality of life. You know, how many qualities can you improve a human life? And, and of course... It has a price tag. It's a little yeah. bit like the COVID uh, vaccines. It's really worth giving everybody uh, compared to the pain and suffering you can prevent. And in Europe, it's more centralized. So it would be a centralized institutions more than an insurance company that will decide whether there is a cost benefit uh, to society. Of course, also not only looking at cost and benefit, but also looking at pain and human suffering. And that's a very complex way of looking at the drugs because if you are a patient that can have a potential cure for life-threatening disease then uh, it, it must be horrible to say i cannot get it because it's too expensive there are unfortunately cases like that it does seem that cost and prices will come down over time as they have done with other technologies and as these medicines become cheaper and better the rationale for using them will become even more apparent. The UK government in particular is leading the charge, pushing this investment with real purpose. And it's also something that Kath is looking to pursue with her work at Bruntwood. I asked her about what she thinks needs to happen for these therapies to be used as an earlier line of treatment and about some of the specifics of CAR-T, a type of therapy where a patient's own immune cells are changed in the lab to target cancer cells and where they're being used right now. I'm just thinking about the, the cell therapy, something like CAR-T. Where is it actually being deployed in the health service at the moment? How do you get access to it? 
Sure. So, so, I mean, so, so there are some CAR T therapies that are appro- approved on the the, the NHS, um, and uh, they they've been approved now for for um, a, a couple of years. I think the reality is, though, um, they are. Um, approved for some very niche blood cancers so they're not they're not um you know available or have been developed yet for um for 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 all cancers so uh, they are deployed for um childhood um leukemia for instance so they are being used for very niche diseases and also um they are used when there is uh, you know, a cancer has come back essentially and there is there is no further treatment available so i think it's fair to say that while they are um in use and they're in use in the uk which is great they show a phenomenal amount of promise um and and you know will truly be transformational and and are transforming people's lives they they aren't commonplace um, and there is some work to do um, to apply this technology and, and similar technologies to other different types of cancer and, and diseases more broadly. So ju- just to think about uh, that point you were making about, you know, it's almost like the last line of defence for, for, uh, for some patients where they've really tried lots of other treatments. What does it look like if, if we are able to use it kind of earlier on in the treatment strategy? What, what would we need to do for that to become the case? I, I think that... There's a couple of ways to answer this, I suppose. I suppose it's thinking around how do we get these niche treatments that show a lot of potential and how do we how do we make them commonplace? I think that there's probably well, there's definitely an economic discussion to be mm-hmm. to be had there. And I think there needs to be improvements and scaling of the clinical infrastructure. Um, so I mentioned previously the, the advanced therapy treatment centres. Um, there are three of them across the UK, headquartered in Newcastle, Birmingham, uh, Manchester, mm-hmm. and they that that network needs to be further invested in and further expanded um, across the UK. I would I, I would say I think that so, yeah, it, it so will become limiting. I think so that there's something around how those are delivered to people and having the correct infrastructure um, that needs to be rolled out. Is that desirable? Um, would, would, do you see a, a time where, where you would be able to do a, a cell therapy site to every hospital? I think th- there's always going to be hubs, I would say, across. Okay. Um, but I think there needs to be more of them um, across the various regions, I would say. There's potential for, for expansion, but I think due to the specialist nature of, of what goes mm. on, um, the you know the, the, the deployment and the skills involved with that, um, I think it's very likely that there'll be hotspots um, in, in regions rather than you know in every town. These treatments aren't commonplace just yet. Further developments are certainly needed to get them there, not least in improving the infrastructure around it and clearly the manufacturing side of things too. But the situation may already look different in a few years. So what does the future hold? Will cell and gene therapies become more prevalent? Will we be able to cure instead of treat? Here's Dan again. When when are we going to see these therapies become more prevalent? So maybe take 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 us through kind of like the the next 10, 15 years. Sure. So I think I think the biggest challenge where, where a lot of the effort is is going at the moment, there's been some tremendous successes in in treating blood cancers, and the the clinical data for that, which has led to the approval of those therapies and, and their use in things like leukemia, and has led to a lot of investment flooding into this this sector. So there's a lot of of, of potential promise there. 
The question is, can you translate those same results to treating uh, solid tumors? So rather than the blood cancers, things like breast cancer, things like lung cancer, grouping all of those solid tumors together, there, there's a huge, huge, huge potential to translate those same results that have been seen in, in blood cancer over to a, a wide range um, of different can cancers and, and really impact a wide number of, of patients' lives. The, the challenge there is that there's still one, both the cost elements that I've mentioned, but also actually in terms of efficacy, it's not clear that the same results will translate quite as well over from a blood cancer to a solid tumor, because part of the reason why some solid tumors are so deadly is that they do a very good job already of excluding immune cells from the, from the tumor. So in the way that these cell-based immunotherapies work, where you're using the immune system and reprogramming it to target those cancers, there's still work to do to prove that you can really use that to treat a solid tumor and get those cells into the tumor. But if that is achieved, then the you know, cell, cell therapy will, will become one of the, the main ways that you do use to treat uh, a wide range of cancers. I think going beyond that in terms of the next generations is, again, some of the things like regenerative medicines, those will start to, to come through as, as we gain just more experience on what it takes to manipulate cells, to handle cells and, and use them as, as a therapy. And then the other one is in the gene therapies themselves, where I think we've seen their use in, in relatively rare patient populations where the, the, the genetic disorder is fairly black and white. And there, there's, a, there's a very clear case for if you can correct that genetic disorder, then that patient's life is, 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 is transformed from one uh, with a fairly short prognosis to, to a full healthy life. I asked Jacob the same thing. Where will cell and gene lead? What's coming around the corner next? Where do we go in the next kind of five, ten years? Is there, is there a, a more widespread adoption of, of cell therapies, gene therapies? And you said that the FDA is going to think that it's going to be approving tens and twenties of these types of therapies per year. So people, when they're talking about this development cycle for cell therapy, is approximately around ten years. So you can say that the second generation treatments that we are looking at, that would be, for example, cells that are invisible to the immune system, where you have removed all the molecules on the cell that makes the immune system recognize the cell, so you don't need to give any immunosuppression. But it could also be more sophisticated manufacturing methods, where you, instead of adding expensive growth factors, which are normally protein and peptides that are expensive, you can genetically modify the cell to become the cell type you want. So forcing the cell by genetic tools that are less expensive to be, uh, for example, insulin-producing beta cells you can use to treat type 1 diabetes with. You, you might use uh, CRISPR to do that or something yeah. along those lines? Yeah, exactly. And then if we look a little bit further ahead, then you can say, then you can make super cells. For example, if you want to, uh, and, and now we are, far out in the future, or maybe not that far, because things sometimes go faster than you anticipate. But if you look a little bit further out, for example, diseases like Alzheimer's, you could imagine that, that you treat with some of the neurons that are lost, 
but that you genetically supercharge them. For example, if you can make neurons you could give to Alzheimer patients that besides substituting some of the lost neurons could secrete neurological growth factors that will prevent more cells from dying or maybe even have neurons regenerate. The possibilities of cell and gene are greater than ever. This is a sort of groundbreaking medicine that could be looked back upon as the most significant innovation of the 21st century. Instead of looking for new ways to treat old symptoms, we're looking at fully curing diseases. Truly a new age of medicine. But if there's one thing I've learned throughout my conversations with Dan, Jacob and Kath, is that personalized regenerative treatments like these are by their very nature incredibly complex. Finding an effective cure for one type of cancer doesn't mean it'll work well on others. It seems that whenever one problem is solved, another challenge comes up. One crucial challenge that kept being mentioned was the manufacture of cell therapies. It seems to be a real bottleneck in the process, a missing piece of the cell and gene puzzle. Kath went back to it many times during our conversation. Yeah, that's quite an interesting point you made about who is making these therapies. Does, does that very much limit how far we can scale this rollout? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I think it's very different um, manufacturing process to dry powder pharmaceuticals, which we've spoken about. And it, so you, know, you need to understand how you can take these therapies and how you can scale up the, the production of, of cells. And again, this is something that the Cell and Gene Therapy Caspalt is investing in. And there have been significant investments uh, across the UK into specific manufacturing sites in order to do that. Developing the people that work in these sites in hospitals has been a priority for the catapults and other groups because it does require very different type of skills. So some of that investment so far has has gone into um, apprenticeships Mm -hmm. and I think that that's a very successful programme that's been supported by the catapult and organisations like the Bioindustry Association to get people into these careers it requires a different understanding than manufacturing and deploying dry powder standard pharmaceutical products. I found it really interesting that the making of these therapies could be such a bottleneck to the process. The manufacture of these treatments goes way beyond traditional methods used for other pharmaceutical products. So how can we improve this process to make Celengy more viable and potentially even cheaper moving forwards? As we wrap up this week's episode of Invent Life Sciences, our journey into cell and gene therapies doesn't end here. Because next week, we're taking a deep dive into manufacturing, speaking to some of the top minds in the space to see if their innovations and improvements could create the missing link to unleash the full potential of cell and gene. Make sure you come back and join us then to find out. Invent Life Sciences is a podcast from TTP. It was hosted by me, Stuart Lowe, biotechnology and bioinstrumentation consultant at TTP. It was produced by Harry Stott. The assistant producers were Ewan Cameron and Florian Bohr. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.